Isaiah 65, in case you can't find yours. Just a backup, because I love you. Isaiah 65. Looks like Bud has Bibles if you didn't bring your own. When we left off last week, the believing remnant, the repentant remnant, the now believing remnant of Israel was praying. It was the end of the tribulation, the seven years of shaking, the time of Jacob's trouble had 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 its desired effect, had accomplished its goal. And believers, some new believers, perhaps some longtime messianic believers in Israel were crying out, calling on the name of the Lord, begging for mercy. And God met them. We talked last week as we read the second part of Isaiah 63 and all of 64, was that the prayer of the saints hunkered down, sheltering in Basra, in, in Petra, who fled there in the middle of the tribulation as Jesus had warned them to do back in Matthew 24? Or was this a second prayer? Was this another contingent of Messianic believers crying out from Jerusalem? Impossible to know for sure. Could be one prayer described in multiple places, or it could be the same kind of prayer prayed by different groups of people in different places. Either way, God answers and Jesus returns. And Isaiah 65 talks about that return, talks about what happens afterwards. But as, as God often does, having gotten very specific, having lasered in, he now helicopters up and, and goes panorama view. And in chapter 65, we have some context. The Holy Spirit in this chapter, speaking prophetically, writing history before it happens, gives us really a big picture outline of human history since the crucifixion. The Holy Spirit's going to kind of pan back and say, okay, let's pick up the story right after Israel rejected her Messiah. And about a third of this chapter is going to be a description of the church age, about a third of the chapter is going to be a description of the tribulation at the end of the church age when God turns his attention back to Israel. And the last third of the chapter will be the millennial kingdom when believers of all ages, when Old Testament saints and Christians and tribulation saints and, and the messianic remnant will all be gathered together worshiping Jesus who reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years. So a lot to cover. Let's get into it. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found, Isaiah 65, verse 1, by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And if we just launch into this, it would be easy to assume that Isaiah, God the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah, is speaking of Israel, that would be an understandable assumption, because Israel has been the topic of, of the entire book for the most part. Israel, at, in, in particularly in the first half of the book, the divided kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, got to keep the name Israel. But God's people, Israel, however they're divided or united politically, has been the topic of the book. 
And so easy to look at verse 65 and say, well, then that's talking about what the whole book's been talking about. Except no, back up and look at it again. I was sought by those who didn't ask for me, found by those who didn't seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Well, we've got a problem because Israel was and is called by God's name. People debate the exact meaning of Israel. You can translate it, let God prevail, or one who struggles with God, because that was Jacob who was renamed Israel. Triumphant with God is another way to read it. But however we read it, God is in the middle of it. So this can't be speaking of Israel. Israel doesn't fit the description we just read. Israel has never been a nation not called by God's name. Who does fit the description? Who wasn't called of God? Who didn't know God? Who nonetheless came to know God? Was met by God? Who did God run after? We just sang about it. Us, the Gentiles. Patrick, are you sure that's the right interpretation? I am because Paul tells us that it is. Keep a finger and flip over to Romans chapter 10. You know, or don't. I'm not the boss of you, but, you know, if you want to follow along. (laughs) Romans 10, it's in the middle of that section that we spent a, a good chunk of Sundays on this year. Paul talking about the future of Israel. And he says in Romans 10, verse 19, I say... Did Israel know? First Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. That's Deuteronomy 32.21. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. So if we let Scripture interpret Scripture, Paul just told us that yes, in fact, Isaiah is speaking of the Gentiles. Why, back to our chapter, back to Isaiah 65, why did all of that come to be? Why did God go to those steps? Why did God set Israel aside? We know the answer. She rejected her Messiah. But that didn't happen out of nowhere, right? It's not like Israel was worshipful and surrendered and submitted, and then one day, you know what? Let's just rebel. Let's just, let's just turn again. It, does, it never works that way, right? No one you know has ever been following God with all of their heart and soul and strength one day, and then the next day said, you know what? I'm an atheist. You know what? I'm apostate. You know what? God is stupid, and I'm going to tell everybody who asks. I remember I was... I was thinking about a young man that, that I, I mentored years and years ago, um, thinking about him because his mother's cancer has returned and, and uh, several of us were praying today. But we were serving together at a church and he was a worship leader uh, in a ministry led by someone who, who fell um, and, and fell catastrophically the way, that, the way that ministers sometimes do. And I remember the conversation I had with him. I, was, I, 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 I pulled him out of whatever he was doing, and we sat down, and, and we, we sat on a staircase, and, and, um, and I broke the news to him, and, and he just stared forward for a long time. And, uh, 
He said, I need your phone number. I said, you have my phone number. He said, yeah, give me your phone number again. I want to make sure that I have it. And then, and then he says, do you have so-and-so's phone number? Yeah, can I, can I have it? And, and he punches that into his own. And you know, two, three, four phone numbers. I said, okay, help, help me understand what, what's happening here. He said, whatever happened to the worship pastor? He said, that didn't happen overnight. He said, this has been a long time coming. And somewhere along the way, he didn't ask for help. I, I need to make sure that I have a bunch of guys' numbers in my phone so that if I'm ever tempted or if I ever stumble or if, or if anything ever goes sideways, I, I don't have an excuse for not asking for help. I want to make it as easy as possible for, for someone to, to, to knock some sense into me and, and lead me back to the Lord. You know, this was a 17-year-old <laughs> young man at the time. Like, wow, what wisdom. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom, and, and, and the Holy Spirit was, you know, he was, in his heart, he was crying out, like, Lord, help me with this. And, and God answered his prayer by giving him wisdom, and, and that wisdom turned out to, to hold him in good stead years later. Israel didn't get the way that Israel got, the way that we read about in the Gospels overnight. Verse 2, I've stretched out my hands, God says, all day long, which is a poetic way of saying for years. <laughs> For centuries, to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. Who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. It's actually a pretty good picture of much of Israel in Isaiah's day, Judah and Israel, because the gardens were a place of worship that wasn't the temple, that wasn't the prescribed place, the designated place, the place that God had said, this is where and how you worship me. Verse 2, 3, and 4, that speaks of idolatry. It speaks of nemancrancy, speaking to the dead, summoning the dead, holding seances, looking to the dead for answers. And, and abominable things in vessels, in, in, in cups, in buckets. That brings to mind boil, boil, toil and trouble, cauldrons that speaks of witchcraft. And all of that was a big part of how Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, ended up defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. God handed them over to their idols and their idols couldn't save them. It's also a big part of why Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. What did the prophets warn of for centuries? Read the prophets from beginning to end. The recurring theme is idolatry. Exile cured Israel's idolatry. We know that. Exile cured it in the sense of Baal worship and worship of Molech. But it didn't address the underlying problem. It cured the behavior, but not the heart issue. What was Israel's heart issue? Self-righteousness. Verse 5, still speaking of his people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I'm holier than thou. That was the attitude of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of the leaders in Jesus' day that we read about in the gospel, that was their attitude, holier than thou. 
Still verse 5. How does God regard it? There's smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Think about in the spring when, when they burn up in, uh, in the Flint Hills and your eyes burn and your nose stings. Well, think about being there in the middle of those burning fields. That's what God is describing here. That's uh, not the sweet-smelling savor of, of worship, but an acrid, stinging, offensive smoke that comes from idol worship. And that's really what self-righteousness is, right? It's the worship of one's own heart, one's self, self-righteousness. Behold, it's written before me, God says, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. <coughs> Is that a short-term prophecy-ish? Certainly that was the basis of God's judgment, again, of, of both the northern and southern kingdoms, except the ones most guilty of what God just described. If we want to read those verses in, in their most literal sense, it was the northern kingdom that was the most guilty of it. And they'd already been judged at the time that Isaiah is writing these things. They'd been, you know, it was a, it was a long time since. Chapter 39 of Isaiah we can pinpoint, was written contemporaneously, was written in 702 B.C. when the Assyrians made their way to Jerusalem only to be turned back by the Lord. This is way later than that, and that was 20 years. 722 uh, was 20 years before the events of Isaiah 39. My point is, I don't think that we can, we can only look to a near-term prophecy because a lot of it has already been fulfilled by Isaiah's day. It's not prophecy at all, it's history. So I think that this is better understood as God drawing a connection, looking at a common denominator, seeing a thread running, and, and saying the same sin that doomed Israel, the same sin for which Judah will soon be punished, is the sin for which he will ultimately set the nation aside. And of course, we can see, looking back, that that's exactly true. Why did God turn his face from Israel? Why did he allow the nations to have their way with her? Because of Israel's pride. Verse 6. We read it, but let's look at it again. If I can get to the right page. Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay. Now, important, God says repay. What does he not say in verse 6? He doesn't say destroy, exactly. We read in Habakkuk 3, 2 and elsewhere that even in judgment, God remembers mercy. And we read that again in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Someone asked me, and it was a great question, the last time I invoked Habakkuk 3.2, which I've probably done 20 times over the course of our study of Isaiah, hang on, 
How can that be true? Even in judgment, God always remembers mercy. He doesn't show mercy to Satan. He doesn't show mercy to Antichrist. He doesn't show mercy to the armies of Antichrist. In the sheep and goat judgment, he doesn't show mercy to the goats. At the great white throne judgment, that's it. There is no second chance after that. So, so how is it that in judgment God always remembers mercy? Well, I mean, that's a really good point. And, and I'd gotten a little bit sloppy but with my reference to Habakkuk 3.2. Because what is God speaking of? You don't have to turn there. What is God speaking of in Habakkuk? Take, take, a, take a guess. Israel. And verse 8 reminds us why God always remembers mercy toward Israel, even when he's judging Israel, even when he's chasing Israel. Why does God always remember mercy? Why does he say, do not destroy it? Verse 8, for a blessing is in it. God remembers mercy because there's always a believing remnant. Go all the way back to, to uh, the story of Abraham and Lot. God, will you withhold your hand for the sake of 40? Well, for the sake of 20, for the sake of 10. If there's a remnant, God stays his hand. If there's a faithful, believing, interceding remnant of Israel, God stays his hand. We, we see that throughout the Old Testament. Elijah, 1 Kings 19.18. Elijah's feeling sad. He's feeling alone. Because he's surrounded by, by uh, idolatrous priests. God reassures him by saying what? There are still 7,000. You might not know their names. You might not have ever met them. But there are 7,000, I'm telling you, in Israel who have not bowed a knee to Baal, who have not, whose mouths have not kissed him. I've got a friend who quotes that all the time. If I, if I call him and I'm bummed out because this is happening or that's happening, look at the nation this, do you believe the Supreme Court that? Do you, uh, you know, have you heard about this church or this pastor? Yeah, but there's still 7,000. It's, it's his way of saying, yeah, there's, there's still a remnant. There are still some of us who, who are clinging to Scripture, teaching Scripture, believing Scripture. That's the principle by which God ministered to Israel. And, and, and the book, the book of Isaiah, go back to chapter 1, the book of Isaiah begins with that thought. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. If it wasn't for a remnant, God would have smoked us. And, and chapter 65 verse 8 is reiterating that. Yeah, Israel is a nation, divided or united. Israel is a nation that deserves judgment. But Israel, God's people, there are still a few. There are not none who call upon the name of the Lord. And for the sake of that few, Isaiah 65, verse 9, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it. My servant shall dwell there. God keeps his promises. He promises that on the other side of the tribulation, there will be deliverance. They will occupy the full expanse of the land. They will have descendants upon descendants. All of God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled 
in those who believe and because of those who believe. Verse 10, Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Not anyone of Jewish descent. Not anyone who can claim Abrahamic DNA. No, for my people who have sought me. That's the believing remnant that we've been talking about, that repentant remnant who call upon the name of the Lord. They'll enter in. They'll enjoy the prosperity, the peace of kingdom. Those who persist in rebellion, those who insist on denying God, those who find their identity in defying God, not so much. You are those who forsake the Lord, verse 11, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Gad and many appear in Isaiah's writing as proper names. And they might be proper names. One way to read this is that those are names of occultic deities. Gad means fortune. Many means destiny. And so those could be the names of, of false gods. And, and again, that would be in keeping with Israel past. That would, be in, that would be consistent with something that Isaiah might say to the people alive when he was, when he was preaching, when he was prophesying. But I think that, that that might be what's going on. Even if it is, I think there's more going on. I think what the Holy Spirit is pointing out here is that Israel today, and presumably Israel future, is like the rest of the unbelieving world. They worship fortune, fame, riches, power, whatever fortune means to you. That's, that's sort of a default deity for the unbelieving world. Riches, fame, power, whatever, whatever, whatever comes to your mind when you say, oh, he's made it. One day, one day my ship is going to come in. Whatever comes to your mind when, when you hear things like that, well, that, that can become an object of worship or, or destiny. A lot of the unbelieving world trusts in destiny, trusts in karma, trusts in you know, believing something into being, trusts, well, things just have a way of working out. Well, they, they, they do, but for the unbeliever, that's not always good. A friend was talking to a family member this past week and, and he reached out to me. We were, we were talking and, and praying about it. We, we witnessing to a family member. The family member says, why do I have to believe in anything? Why can't I just let the universe unfold and trust that the universe is going to unfold in the way that it's supposed to and it's going gonna, it's gonna to favor me the way that I'm supposed to be, you know, favored or, or blessed? Oh, how dangerous is that to trust in destiny? So much of the world wants to make their own destiny or just await their destiny. Jesus says, no, you, you get to choose your destiny. I'm the author of your destiny, and then I'm going to give you two choices. Your destiny can be judgment or your destiny can be mercy. And I'll give you whichever one you want. Those in Israel who try to make their own destiny or await destiny they try to make their fortune or await their destiny it doesn't end well verse 12 i'll number you for the sword 
and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. He called good evil and evil good. There's some wordplay in verse 12 that doesn't come across in the English. I'll number you for the sword can also be translated, I will destine you for the sword. It's that idea of destiny again. If you try to make your destiny or await your destiny, I will bring about your destiny. That's actually true either way. God holds all of our destinies in his hand, right? Judgment or mercy. We choose. Verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing of joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name." little echo there of Revelation 2.17 when God promises us that he gives us a name that only he knows. We've said before the tribulation decimates the world's Jewish population. Zechariah 13. I say from memory, but I'm almost sure I'm right. Yeah, I'll bring one-third through the fire, Zechariah 13.9. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. Who will? The one-third that will remain. They'll call on my name and I'll answer them. I'll say this is my people and each one will say the Lord is my God. Zechariah talking about the same thing that Isaiah is. It's that remnant of Israel. The one-third that's not wiped out. That that calls upon the name of the Lord. We tend, to, we tend to think of that and associate that with Antichrist, and then that's, that's perfectly apt, that's perfectly right. Antichrist wreaks de devastation on the Jewish population that's, that's twice that what Hitler managed. But God allows it, is the staggering thing. Antichrist can't do anything without God's permission. Why does God allow it? Judgment. Judgment on who? On an unbelieving people who had every opportunity to know better. Not just in the days of Jesus. Not just in the days of the prophets. But throughout the tribulation. The 144,000 witnesses sealed. The angel flying from one end of the heavens to another. The two witnesses. Moses and Elijah or whoever you believe them to be. God during the tribulation gives Israel every opportunity to hear the truth, to understand the truth, to receive the truth, to respond to the truth. Those who do not fall at the hands of Antichrist. But one-third remain, and that's that one-third that Isaiah speaks of, verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten because they're hidden from my eyes. They'll get to enter in with the church, with the Old Testament saints, with the tribulation saints. What will that be like? Here's the last section of the chapter. First third or so were about the church age. The second third or so of the chapter was about the tribulation. And now... 
we're caught up with, with where Isaiah left off in chapter 64, and we're talking about the kingdom. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now people get tangled up there, and they said, well, this is talking about heaven. This is, this is what we read about at the end of Revelation. No, it's not. How do you know? Because in just a couple verses, Isaiah is going to be talking about death and cursing. And neither one of those happened in heaven. So we know that this is different. This is not the, 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 the new heavens and the new earth that, that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. This is a repaired, a substantially but not entirely recreated, renovated, revived earth. What do we know about it? Verse 18, be uh, the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad, verse 18, and rejoice forever in what I create, what I recreate. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, the top of verse 19. Who will? Jesus will. We can read that literally. Jesus will be rejoicing in Jerusalem. Why? Because his people will return to him and be worshiping him. Verse 20, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. But the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. It's sort of a cryptic verse, and I've probably gotten more questions about this verse over our study of Isaiah than any other one verse. I, I think the way that we read this is that no babies will die in the millennial kingdom. There won't be any infant mortality. That, that'll be part of the, the, the substantial um, undoing of the curse. Some speculate that that means that, that, that children will live all the way through the age of accountability. Maybe. I, I can understand how you get there. It's speculation. But no babies will die is what it, what it says, so we can trust in that. It also says no one will die of old age. If we read further, it says that people will have 100 years to choose Jesus. Remember, everyone who enters the kingdom is a believer some in glorified bodies, you and me, some still in mortal bodies, and they will procreate. And their children, being born with a sin nature, have the same opportunity that we do to choose Jesus or rebel against Jesus, but they'll have a hundred years to do it. Think of that. If they don't choose Jesus in a hundred years, well, then it's game over. I guess a hundred years is, is enough time to make a choice. If they do choose Jesus... They'll live throughout the millennium. There's no mention of, of a believer dying in the millennium. There's no mention of a resurrection for millennial saints. We get to Revelation 20, and it talks about the uh, different resurrections. Tribulation, saints are resurrected, and, and that, they're the last to be resurrected. The resurrection of the dead is completed. So those who die in the, in the millennial kingdom will not be resurrected, at least not resurrected to heaven. It's a minor, minor point in the big scheme of things, but like I said, I've gotten a lot of questions. All right, let's wrap up. As, as we've studied Isaiah, we've seen different verses that kind of point and refer and remind us that the kingdom will be characterized by peace and prosperity, the curse substantially lifted, a lot of its effects mitigated, 
verse 21. They'll build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. So there won't be war. There won't be strife. There won't be uh, uh, competition where, where one class of people is exploited for the benefit of another. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and the elect shall enjoy the work of their hands. People, people will work and, 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 and enjoy the, the, the fruit of their labor rather than working for, for another. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Skip down to verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That would appear to say that the animal kingdom in the millennial kingdom will not be be the survival of the fittest anymore. It seems to suggest that there will be no carnivores, that animals that are carnivorous today will learn to be herbivores. I, people debate that, and I can see it both ways, because people, if we get to, when we get to Ezekiel, people eat meat in the millennial kingdom. So I can see why there might be an issue with that interpretation of verse 25. If we stay big picture, peace, prosperity, long life, enjoying life, um, no persecution, uh, no subjugation, no war. But the best part, the best part far and away is verse 24. We skipped it, go back to it. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. The very best part of the millennial kingdom will be intimacy, familiarity, proximity, intimacy with Jesus. And we've got to end by just pausing and realizing that is our privilege today, right? The things that will be true literally in the kingdom in the millennial kingdom, in the physical kingdom of Jesus, can be true, should be true, if we let them be true for us today in the spiritual kingdom of Jesus. Intimacy. Believing, trusting that God hears our prayers before we speak them, answers our prayers before we even formulate them. And how often do we back away from that? How often do we, do we nod and pay lip service like that while scoffing in our hearts? How often do we say, yeah, you know, I read it, but I'm not sure I believe it. Why? Because I don't see it. I don't see God answering prayer the, the, the way that that verse would seem to suggest. Let's do what the Holy Spirit did with this chapter. Let's go big picture as we wrap up and as we consider that question. The scope of what we've been looking at is hundreds and hundreds of years. There were 500 years of rebellion before God finally, and I'm rounding, but, but five centuries of rebellion before God finally said to Judah, enough. And they were carried off into, into exile, the Babylonian captivity. After they return from exile, there's another 500 years until the birth of Christ. 
even after they reject Jesus, there's 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the sack of Jerusalem and and the burning of the temple, the near-term fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy of judgment. It's been 2,000 years almost since then. And when God ends the church age and turns his attention back to Israel in the time of Jacob's trouble, in the seven years of the tribulation, it will be seven years. You and I might say, what, how does it take seven years for God to get his point across? He's never in a hurry, is the point. After Jesus returns, the millennial kingdom, millennial, a thousand, it's a thousand literal years of Jesus ruling and reigning, a thousand years of peace and prosperity. But what happens at the end? Jesus lets Satan off his leash. Satan wreaks havoc again. There's war against Jesus again. Why? God lets lets the experiment run for a thousand years. Hey, people have always said, if I could see Jesus, I'd believe. If I see Jesus, I'll I'll, I'll live a Christ-like life. If I could only see. So, So God brings us back to the garden as a species, as it were substantially returns returns to the state of Eden, puts Jesus high on the hill in Jerusalem. And after a thousand years of and and long people of of long life with ample opportunity to, to see some will still reject him. And at the end of the millennium, some will war against him. Proving once and for all, it's not our environment that's the problem. (laughs) What's the point? God's not in a hurry. 500 years for this to roll out. 500 years for that to roll out. 40 years to stage this. 7 years to tee up that. Uh, He has his own timeline. He has his own schedule for working out people and places and events. For speaking prophecy. For, for, for allowing his word to be made manifest. Pastor Tim, who, who, who did our men's retreat, and he spoke here the, the, that Sunday, he reached out to me this week. He, he was very interested in, in how, how we train up interns for ministry here. And, and he said, can you write down some, some things about it? In particular, how did you get started? Because he mentors a lot of pastors and talks to a lot of churches. And Hey, how does a church that, that wants to have a mentoring uh, intern program, how, I, I, and, and I thought about the genesis of that. And it actually began, long before it began, it started with Pastor James and Pastor Josh saying, you know what, we need a summer program for junior high school students. That became a, a summer program for junior high and high school. That, that by the time we, we said, hey, I think the Lord is calling us to mentor people for ministry, we had people who had been raised up and discipled with, with servants' hearts who were ready to do that. God was moving way before we had any idea, before we were planning plans. And, and the point is, I, I think for all of us, the longer we walk with the Lord, 
the more we're aware. God takes a thread here and he connects it with a strand there. And he brings it to a point over there. Things that we thought that, we, that didn't matter. Things that we thought were inconsequential. Things that we thought were long forgotten. God brings these seemingly random things together and does what? Redeems them. God's never in a hurry. The prayers that we prayed five years ago, ten years ago, the prayers that some of you prayed 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you might just be seeing answers today. It's one reason it's so important to pray for, for, for our, our church, the, the church that we enjoy, the, the church, the family that we are in five years, I think is very much a prayer of the, the uh, function of the prayers that we pray today. And that's true with every aspect of our lives. I talk to so many people who, who uh, when we're doing premarital counseling, come to realize, you know what? Their, their marriage, their relationship was something that people had been praying about for decades before they were born or as they were growing up. Why do we not look at verse 24 and own it, claim it? Why do we not look at verse 24 and say, it shall come to pass? That before we call, God is answering. And while we're still speaking, he's hearing. Jesus is, is taking those prayers and, and he's, he's reshaping them and he's bringing them before the Lord and saying, hey, this is what Patrick was trying to pray and this is, this is what he would have prayed if, if he knew everything that we know. God's answering in according with his, accordance with his goodness, his wisdom, his plans. Never in a hurry, but never late. And always good. Lord, we, we see this tapestry of grace unfolding throughout your word. We see the scarlet thread running all through the scriptures. The identity of Messiah revealed a little by little by little by little. Your plan for the church concealed for centuries and centuries and centuries and and then in your timing made manifest, your plan for Israel brought into, into, into just clear revelation on this side of the cross. Oh Lord, teach us faith. That the God who brought us this far is not going to abandon us. God who created us and went to the cross to redeem us hears us, loves us, and even now is working out plans for us that are exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers, for answering our prayers. Thank you for answering our prayers better than we pray. Thank you for, for the times that you say no because you don't know what you're talking about. Thank you for the answers that are no because I've got something way better than you can imagine. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.